the knowledge of the Father's love for you, that you would be able to love yourself as much as God the Father does. God the Father loves you. And if you can just get a grasp of how much he actually loves you, you'd be able to love yourself and find the light yoke in the gospel and be free. So I pray that in one way, shape, or form through the text that we preached this morning, you would be able to grasp just how great the Father's love is for you. So I invite you to pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you that we've gathered here by faith. And we stand before your eternal throne. You're the, you alone are the one who is wise. We can't even come close to understanding just how great your wisdom is. You order everything perfectly. And so we get to rest in your sovereign reign and rule. You wrote the story before it began. This season is not questionable, neither is the next season of life until death. Jesus Christ is our Savior and glory is our destiny. So bless us this morning as we open up your word, O Lord, to see your mercy and grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray in his name, amen. I'd like to uh, begin our time together this morning with a question, and uh, that question is this. What comes to mind, you hear that? Okay, how's it now? Here's the question. What comes to mind when you think of, about God? What comes to mind when you think about God? That word and or idea of God himself, what thoughts, images, and or questions fill your heart and mind? Here's the cool thing about that question. You don't have to be a Christian to be able to answer that, that question um, itself. Christians and both non-Christians, skeptics and seekers as well, all have a go-to thought when they think about God. And uh, oftentimes what happens in light of this idea of what we think about God is that the thoughts that gather in our brains and hearts are byproducts of our story and certain life experiences. It's not always a bad thing, but it could be a dangerous thing, and here's why. Because you know as well as I do that life itself is broken, and along with good and fortunate things, there also comes to us in our lives sickness and suffering and sin, and need, and hardship, and all of those things affect us as human beings. And so whether our disposition before God be positive, negative, neutral, we all end up having a disposition before God, and that disposition is crucial to our life and existence as creatures. I was online this week, and I, uh, I found this really powerful quote written by a man named A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book titled, The Knowledge of the Holy, and this is what Tozer said in his book. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or improper as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives 
God to be like. We tend as human beings by a secret law of the soul to move toward or away from our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual, but also of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So this morning, in our time together in this sermon, what I'd like to do is take our thoughts about God that have been most likely uh, shaped and or influenced by our life and experiences and add them up to the scriptures to see if our disposition before God this morning is indeed the one that he longs for us to have. And further, to see if our thoughts about him are accurate to what he discloses in his word to be true about himself. I think most simply point, uh, put this morning, I want to show you how, how God has sought to reveal himself to the person and work of Jesus and how through considering the person and work of Jesus, we all together as his people can rest assured that God is more gracious and good and loving and kind than we can ever even begin to imagine. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning, and we're going to be examining verses 13 through 22. I've titled the sermon. You've looked up on the screens. What should we know about God? And from this text, I'd like to show you three really, really, really important things. Number one, that he's personal. Number two, that he wants to be remembered. And number three, his intention is to love us. What shall we know about God? That he's personal, that he wants to be remembered, and that his intention for all people is to love us. We begin our time by reading the text again, Exodus 3, 13 through 22. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, to the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. My brothers and sisters, this is God's word. 
And uh, right now, I'd like to move to point number one and make the point to you that God is personal. Uh, Last week, we finished up uh, the first half of the chapter. And if you remember, what we saw in the first half of uh, Exodus chapter 3 was a picture of Moses standing before God for the very first time, beholding his glory from the the burning bush, considering some of his attributes. And after a few moments of dialogue with the divine... God revealed what his intention and saving plan was for his people in Egypt. If you look there in verse 11, God said to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If you remember, Israel uh, during this time was in the nation of um, Egypt and were living under the heavy hand of Pharaoh as slaves. They were indeed suffering and being persecuted. And so here we are this morning in the middle of the scene up on Sinai and the conversation between God and Moses is still continuing on. And in response to this monumental task and instruction given to him, Moses responds to God with a question of his own in verse 13 and says this, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is one of the most uh, famous quotes spoken by God in the Bible because this is the place where God himself reveals his personal covenant name. But as you look at that phrase there, I am, you might have noticed that it comes in the form of an unusual expression, I am. In the original language here, it actually occurs in, in one word, aya, which is, which is written in the form of a verb, which means to be. And so plainly, as the Lord is revealing himself, his personal name to Moses, God is not merely saying to Moses, I am who I am, but rather I will be who I will be. And I get that because if you consider the context, it makes sense to interpret this in in future tense because in this conversation, God indeed is speaking to Moses of future events that are about to take place in Egypt. If you look in verse 20, God says to him, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. Another thing that you might notice here is that uh, it's not necessarily uh, Moses that was curious about God's name here, but rather that Moses was foreseeing, in a sense, Israel's curiosity. And that's because names during this time were significant since they revealed the character of the person to whom they were assigned. Thus far in the story of the Bible, God had been given multiple titles and names, Jehovah, El Shaddai, El Leon, etc. And so as Moses here asked for God's name, he was in a sense understanding that the people of Israel would want to know under what new title, aka revelation, was God about to appear to them. And notice the significance of verse 15 in, 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 in pairing it with the covenant name. And God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob has sent me to you. In other words, Moses here is not coming to Israel in the name of a new God, but rather in the name of the one true God of old, the one whom their forefathers and ancestors worshiped. 
The word Lord here is representative of the word Yahweh, which in Hebrew is simply a third-person form of the phrase I am. It means he is. And so in one sense, God is saying he is who he is, the almighty, the infinite one who's burning from the bush, the self-sustaining creator, the one who is above and beyond creation. And in another sense, just in a different form in this passage, we have God saying he will be who he will be. Moses is charged with the task of going to the people of God with this name. And in the very name given to them, God is saying, I am unfathomable because I alone am God. And if you're really curious about knowing me, watch and wait for what I'm about to do. No longer would, be God, would God's name be a mere form of address. But God's name from here on out would exist and function to tell a story. And that story was the story of God's great act of redemption performed on behalf of his people. And so in one sense, we have from the fire coming from the burning bush saying, I'm God above me. There is no other. I am the great I am, the incomprehensible, inexhaustible one. And on the other sense, we have God saying, but if you want to understand who I am and know me, consider my actions. One theologian named D.A. Carson said this, just because we don't know God fully doesn't mean we can't know God truly. In other words, God is infinite and eternal, but we are able to know him insofar as much as, much as he has revealed himself to us. And so, and so saints, in light of the New Testament, what I ask you, what great works of redemption and acts of salvation has the Lord God Almighty revealed to us? Might I remind you of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember the reason why the Jews tore their clothes and convicted Christ uh, of blasphemy? Because Jesus appeared on the, news, on the scene in the New Testament and claimed to be this God. John chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Same phrase. And just to make sure we get and grasp the full identity of this Lord, of Christ himself, John in his gospel pairs out seven different sections, seven I am statements to help us get this very thing. It's why the, the Bible itself slows down for four books to say the same thing over and over again. This is Emmanuel. He's come. John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. 10, I am the door. 10, I am the good shepherd. 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In other words, saints, what I'm trying to show you is that as we get to the New Testament, Jesus is Yahweh in sandals. Grasp that. Jesus is Yahweh in sandals. And the good news here, Christ being the good news here, 
he himself has an even greater name to the one than the one that's revealed here in our chapter because here in our chapter, this name Yahweh functioned as a forecaster of God's redemptive work for a future event, the Exodus narrative. But by and through the name of Jesus, we have the fullest and most clear picture of redemption complete. The name of Jesus literally means God is salvation. So every time we hear the name of Christ, we think of that God who's come to us in flesh and consider the store of redemption and the result thereof, which is salvation. God longs to be known and called this, Jesus. Another thing that you might notice through the New Testament, if you take time to read it, is how the authors, specifically the apostles of the Bible, give to Christ this very name in Exodus 3. You'll see it in all caps, Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says this, For there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, there's a word, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every tongue confess that he is what? He is Lord. You see it in the chapter. Revelation 19, on his throne and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Romans chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. Saints, what I'm trying to say is that God longs to be personally known and his ultimate and final revelation of himself personally is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers. But in these last times, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if you saw on uh, social media this week, NASA released some uh, clips of, this is crazy, of a black hole making noise. <laughs> That's huge, right? Because space is this big vacuum suction cup. It makes no noise up. There's no noise up there. But, but they discovered this, um, this black hole making noise. And, and, they, and the audio clip is available on, 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 on the video. And I watched it. And it was like the, the freakiest thing in the whole entire world. I thought about that. And then I thought about God. And I thought, wow, God actually knows where that's coming from and what's making the noise. It made me feel really small as I think about the, the maker and sustainer of the universe who knows the, the intricacies of that very black hole. The Bible says that Jesus is the one who created that. Behold the mystery of the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh. God is not distant. He is not vague. He is not somewhere far off in a distance in a mystical galaxy or abyss. But rather, he is Emmanuel, God with us, called upon and related to, revealed for the sake of his people. And we, you and I, were made for this, to know and have relationship with the Christ. 
We're not meant to live as spiritual orphans without hope or certainty of everlasting life, wondering of what God could be or is. If he's out there to be known, he has made himself known, for he has stepped out of heaven onto earth and said, here I am. And so if you want to encounter God and hear his personal voice, be held, comforted, and kept by him, it is through and in this one person. God the Father is pleased to reveal and exalt his Son. If you want to know God truly, this is where it begins. You must humble yourself before the hand of the Almighty, the maker and sustainer of the universe, and say, I am just a creature. Woe is me, but there you are. And the one thing I know about you as I think about your holiness and consider your Son is that I need you. I need you. Do you need God? Do you need God? It's not just a message for non-Christians, but it's also for Christians. How so? Because Jesus himself is the eternal, inexhaustible God. And the scriptures say that his riches are unsearchable. And so even if you've been walking with Christ for years, you haven't even began to scratch the tip of the iceberg. We're talking about the great I am, the, the eternal one here. The one who is with the Father and the Spirit for eternity past, before this whole story began. Saints, I urge you to seek the face of God. Seek, seek the face of God. Search the depths and riches of his person and of his salvation offered through his son. Christ says this to you this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Do you want to know God? My challenge to you this morning is to consider the second person of the Trinity. God in flesh, Emmanuel, who bled and died for your sin. My wife, this is how she was saved. She grew up in the church. She saw people wanting, to, she saw people believing God, raising their hands in worship, but she never had it inside of her. And she thought to herself, man, I really want to do that. I feel like a fake and phony. I'm not sure if that's actually me. In fact, that isn't me. And you want to know what she did? She, she went home one morning after service and locked herself in her room, got on her knees and said, God, I don't believe in you, but I do want to believe in you because I see those people worship you and I know there's something there. I want that. Would you give it to me? And do you know what he did? Jesus fulfilled his promises. He stands at the door and he answered and he gave himself to my wife. God, this is the good news of the gospel. God wants to be known by you and it's possible. You can know God. And knowing God is not just at the, at the beginning of faith when you become a Christian. Knowing God is a process and it doesn't stop. This is why he's never enough because he's, he's inexhaustible 
He's so merciful and gracious. He wants to give himself to you forever. He's not done. He, he hasn't even really begun to get started. He's eternal. Christian, what waits for you is the face and person of the eternal God. He's offering himself to you. Do you want to be filled? Do you want to have joy? Do you want to be sustained? Do you want to bubble up with hope and, 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 and intimacy of the creator? Here he is, God, Jesus Christ. There's an eternal brook for you to sip on. You never have to go thirsty if you come and sip the brook. I wonder if you're thirsty. If you're a Christian and you're thirsty and you lost your way, it's time to come back to the brook. God will pour out the gospel into your mouth and your dry tongue will be quenched. God's personal. I'm going to move to point number two. Second thing is that he longs to be remembered. I uh, mentioned to you earlier how God's intention through Moses here was um, not for him to bring a new God to the people, but as he has revealed his personal name to remind his people that he is the covenant-keeping God. The one who appeared to uh, the patriarchs, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And actually, if you look there in the text, that one phrase is repeated twice. God says, I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a, it's a re, reoccurring uh, title for God in the Old Testament. And it's easy to skip by because it's so familiar. Um, but the familiar, familiarity of this phrase can, can actually blind us to the fact that up until this point in history, um, centuries had passed between Abraham and Moses. The story of Abraham began in Genesis chapter 12, and here we are all the way in Exodus chapter 3. So much time had gone by, and what apparently what had happened was that because of the current place and situation, the predicament that the people of Israel were in in Egypt, the person and story of Abraham to these people probably seemed to be a lost figure of ancient history or maybe even an irrelevant story or event. I mentioned to you before that the revelation of God's proper name here is Yahweh. Um, and I'm not sure if you know this or not, but his name, this covenant name, has been used um, multiple times before the story. Earlier throughout the, the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, 9, 12, 28, and 30. But if you read the story of Genesis, specifically uh, looking at uh, the life there after Jacob, what you'll notice is that God's covenant name is barely used, if at all pretty much goes silent. The same example is given in the book of Esther. The, the, the thing that makes the book of Esther unique is that the name of God is nowhere to be found in that book. And it's not because God wasn't involved in the, in the, in the events of the story, but rather because the author wanted the reader to get the impression that the Jews of Esther's day had largely become paganized. This is what most likely had become the spiritual condition of Israel as they lived for 400 years in that foreign and pagan land, Egypt. Without any of the patriarchs or spiritual leaders of the gospel to proclaim to them the one true God, knowledge of the one true God, probably over time, living for him, practicing faith in front of him, praying and worshiping him regularly, had probably drifted off and or away. 
And so God's will for Moses in front of these people is not only to say his name, but in this context to remind them of their forefathers, to speak the name of the Lord to Israel so Israel would remember the story and the changelessness of their one true God. The faithfulness of the covenant-keeping God, that he is good and faithful to his people. That one day, although they were in slavery, they would become free and become a great nation. God says to Moses, go to the people and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. And what? This is my name forever. What's my point? My point is that God wants to be remembered by his people throughout the generations forever. How does this happen and occur? Through having children and making disciples. By and through gospel proclamation and holy living, both in this covenant family and in your covenant family at home. That we as mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and grandparents would walk before the Lord as holy and blameless. And that we as disciple makers would instruct our children in the ways they should go. That our lives inside of this church would testify, proclaim, even here in worship, to this great covenant keeping Lord who has indeed been faithful to his people. And that outside of this place, we would live as a light to the nations in the world, but not of the world, so that we can proclaim the gospel and the nations revere the name of Christ. So that the name of Christ would be moved to a non-believing generation, and that the name of Christ would be given to our children, so that their children's children, children, to a thousand generations, would behold the Lord. I was preparing this sermon this week. I was praying over, praying over the building and the property. And I thought to myself, what if God over the next 10 years, by the way, it's not impossible. Okay. Let me just say something. Um, when we started in 2019, there was 50 people and now we have 200 people. That's a 300% increase. If over the next four years, the Lord did that again, we'd be close to a thousand, 800 to be exact. What if the Lord did that? Do you know that he wants to do that? For none other than the sake and glory of his name. He wants disciples to be made and non-Christians to become Christians and Christian families to have children so the gospel can move on and pass the generation. Church, do you know that we don't, did you know this? We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the next generation. You exist for your neighbors. You might think I'm crazy, like, the reason why I don't move out to the country is because my neighbors don't know the Lord. The reason why I give my tithes and offerings to the church is so the gospel would move forward. I can take that money and go on a fat vacation, or I can fuel the church with money so its resources can be used, so the gospel can be proclaimed. Come on, I'm not talking, I'm really saying that the gospel is a whole life thing. Your time, your treasures, your talents, your resources, will you sit back and consume or will you partake in the mission? 
I want my grandchildren, when they think of my name, to not stop at my name, but to remember how I love the Lord. I want my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren and their children to remember James John Martin V, the one who bled his life out for the gospel so the Martin lineage would continue to worship the Savior. I want this church to be existing for the people who will fill your seats when you no longer exist. This is why we exist. What if like we baptized babies and they were brought into the covenant family to know and fear God and they went off to baptize their babies? It's not, it's not impossible. I actually just saw it in Bloomington, Illinois. My father-in-law's church, he baptized children who grew up in his church, who then had children who are now being baptized. It's the will of God. Golly, godliness and the gospel passed on to generous. What if we brought in non-Christians and we shared with them the gospel and they became our spiritual children and through our community groups and through our calendar, making time for coffee with them, we discipled them and they could know the Lord and then to be a second Timothy 2.2, we could teach them the gospel and they would go on to do what? Teach others to do the same. What if we did this? What if we existed for the sake of God, the name of God being renowned? I just want to say thank you so much for those of you who, who, um, who signed up to, to help out our children's ministry. It's really big and grand right now, and we're really, we really need to help. And if you signed up for the children's ministry, I just want to say thank you. I know that it's easier to be here and worship, but I know that through you signing up, you long for the children to get the gospel here in our church. Thank you. Our lives don't belong to ourselves, but we belong body and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you want to like sign up and help out the youth, the next generation needs to be impacted here at the church. Please sign up for the youth. We can use some more volunteers. At the um, trunk retreat this, this, this month, we only have so far five trunks, I think, signed up. We need 30. It's just really practical, ordinary ways of giving your life away. So, so not that we can just feel special of ourselves, but so that our neighbors can know that this church is living and we exist for them. really thankful for you being sanctified by the gospel and for me being the same. Um, today's the day to renew your covenant vows to Christ if you, if you feel like your life is actually not committed to him and you're playing the game. Would you like to do that? Today's the day to commit your covenant vows. Recommit yourself to the Lord. Uh, that was point number two. God longs to be remembered. He wants to be remembered through his people. We're the ones. I'd like to finish now in the third point, which is the last thing that we must know about God is that his intention above all and in all is to, uh, is to love us. In the final section of this chapter, if you look there in verses 17 to 22, it pretty much summarizes uh, the personalness of God by uh, displaying his heart for his people and their future. In point number one, we saw that he's personal in point number two, we saw that he belongs, he longs to be remembered. And then here, here in this last part, it's actually the easiest part to preach and speak of because here, as this chapter closes, we have before us what is God's intention and goal in all of this. 
If you look in verse 17, 20, and 21, what you'll see is that God longs for his people to flourish and to live. For Israel to be taken up out of their slavery in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey so that they would be freed and live an abundant life. No, that is not a charismatic uh, health, wealth, prosperity um, sentence. That is a gospel sentence. God wants you to flourish, live, and have an abundant life. Jesus' will for you is to have joy. Jesus' will for you is to have joy. I uh, began this sermon by reading to you a quote from A.W. Tozer by talking about the importance of what we think about God. The interesting thing about um, that article was that C.S. Lewis, he lived during the same time as Tozer. C.S. Lewis is the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote an article in response to what Tozer said in his first. Really interesting. This is what C.S. Lewis said in response to Tozer. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing about life is how we think about God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance at all, except insofar as it relates to how he thinks of us. The Bible says that we shall stand before him, shall appear and be inspected, The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, and shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in that divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. This is why Christ is vital to this text and situation. Because by and through Christ, We not only know about God, but more specifically what he longs for us to know about him. That he is madly in love. That we are the objects of his joy. That God the Father looks at you because of Christ and says, wow, you're special. You're amazing. You're the apple of my eye. Jesus Christ himself humbled himself. He left heaven, came to earth, died a sinful death, and rose on our behalf so that we would be filled with the power of the spirit that resurrected him from the dead. His very spirit comes and lives inside us to bring life to our souls so we can experience the fullness of his joy. That we would know that the promise is guaranteed. Our Savior died, our Savior rose, and what? Our Savior is coming again. My friend who just became a Christian just a few months ago, just became a Christian, and he said, James, I didn't know how much joy awaited me. He said, all my non-Christian friends that I'm still hanging out with are looking at me and wondering why I'm smiling so much. God is madly in love with you. He has affection for you. He is pleased to dote over you. 
Jesus is a merciful Savior. Jeremiah chapter 29 is for you who trust in Christ. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and to give you hope and a future. If you have not experienced joy in a while and you are hidden in Christ, I promise to you it is coming. But you have an eternal hope that has been sealed inside of you that cannot be snuffed out the work of the Spirit and you will be kept until glory and on that day you will certainly experience it. I'm just asking as I close, do you know God? Have you ever known God? Have you lost touch with God? God wants to be known. He wants for you to behold his love for you displayed in the cross where he bled and died for the forgiveness of your sin so you can be eternally clean. I pray that we would turn to him this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Exodus chapter 3, how even in this story we get to behold Christ. Jesus, you're the whole purpose of the scriptures. And uh, while we never have to doubt for one second, if you love us, Father, for you not to love us would be for you not to love Christ, and that cannot be possible. And so thank you that you love us just as much as you love Christ because we have been united to him. Thank you that we're seated in heavenly places with Christ, adopted into the family, and we receive full inheritance of the kingdom of God. Thank you that you long for us to laugh. Thank you that you long for us to have joy. Thank you that we indeed are the objects of your joy. Praise you for your great work of redemption. Praise you for your great act of salvation. Great and holy are you. Jesus, we love you, and this church is for you. May we be a city on a hill and a light to the nations. I pray in your name. Amen.